Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 19. As I mentioned earlier, we've been working through the book of Genesis little by little. And uh, we come to the second half of what in some ways is a challenging chapter, not necessarily challenging to understand, uh, but challenging to our hearts. We'll be looking at Genesis 19, verses 17 through 38 this morning. Uh, But before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we can rejoice that we stand forgiven at the cross. And uh, even as we come to a passage like this in the book of Genesis, which challenges us and reminds us of the coming judgment and to flee from that judgment, we know to whom we must flee. And we pray that you would help us to flee to Jesus and to find refuge in him and even to find comfort uh, under the shadow of the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll actually begin reading just a few verses earlier in uh, verse 15. Genesis 19, beginning in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, The smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up to Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, 
He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. I love making U-turns. Now, one of my sons tells me that they're not legal. Uh, You don't have to come up to me afterwards and clarify one way or another. That's okay. Uh, But what I like about U-turns is just being able to crank the wheel all the way to the left and get going in the opposite direction without having to do a three-point turn. Uh, All that back and forth seems so inefficient, right? Just crank, turn, and go. Well, U-turns, whether legal or not, are, of course, biblical. Hear me out. (laughs) Most of us, at various points in our lives, find ourselves going in the wrong direction at some point, living comfortably in some sin, and we realize we need to stop and reverse course. It's not a one-time thing. It's really an everyday thing as we see our sin and our need for repentance and renewed obedience. Our text this morning uh, tells us how to do that, how to turn from sin, how to flee judgment and find grace. Uh, It is, of course, it tells us that by way of contrast. Uh, Maybe you remember from last week that Paul gives us an interpretive principle in 1 Corinthians 10.6 where he says, speaking of Israel's life in the wilderness, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Well, once again, the people in this story are mostly good examples of what not to do. Our outline, you can see in your bulletin, is uh, just four points. And this is what to do. Uh, Listen to God's voice. Don't look back. Respond from the heart. And warn those in danger and pray for them. So first, listen to God's voice. Oftentimes, when we find ourselves making a mess out of life, the last thing we want is advice. It's stubbornness, yeah, it's it's pride on our part, but really, if I'm digging myself in a hole, I don't necessarily want someone to come along and state the obvious. You're in deep. I might need someone to do that, mind you, but I don't necessarily want it. Uh, We like to think, or at least I like to think, I know what I'm doing. I'm in control here. I've got everything handled. It's a total lie, of course, but I like to think that. I'm sure on some level, Lot thought that as well. He knew what he was doing. Uh, He chose Sodom, sure, but that's because it it was good pasture land. He's not actually going to become like the Sodomites. He could handle them. He could stand his ground. He could maintain his profession, his witness, his faith. No problem, except it was a problem. Little by little, Lot was compromising. It had already started back in chapter 13. Uh, Lot and Abraham had both become rich. 
The land wasn't big enough for the both of them. And Abraham, beginning to live by faith, said, you choose Lot. If you go left, I'll go right. He wasn't grasping after the things of this age, but living for the age to come. Lot saw the Jordan Valley, that it was a good land, well watered like the Garden of Eden, and he chose that land for himself. Oh, uh, and Sodom was there, the wicked city. The writer tells us at that point in chapter 13 that the city was wicked. Uh, It wasn't a surprise to anyone. It wasn't a secret, but Lot chose it anyway. He was walking by sight and not by faith. He was looking for what he could get in the present life rather than looking for the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Eventually, Lot moves into Sodom. He settles down, he buys a house, and he takes up politics, sitting himself in the gate of the city, the place where judgments are made. Now, there's nothing wrong with politics. Uh, Joseph and Daniel in the Bible are both models of public servants who remain faithful no matter what. But Lot is no Daniel. He clearly compromises. Uh, We saw his horrific decision last week to offer his daughters to the angry mob outside his door to try to save his guests. And his parenting in other ways seems to lack something because his daughters do not know what it looks like to walk in the way of the Lord. And that's relevant because God had just said in chapter 18 that one of the reasons he chose Abraham was so he would teach his children righteousness. Well, apparently Lot didn't get the memo. At the end of our story, we see Lot drunk, so drunk he commits incest and doesn't even know it. Into this compromise, God comes in grace to Lot. But first he comes in judgment towards Sodom. God had heard the outcry against them. He knew they were oppressive and abusive, cruel and unkind. And God had come down to confirm what he knew and to bring judgment. God consistently in scripture hears the outcry of the oppressed and he acts on their behalf. Well, God came to bring judgment to Sodom, but he would spare Lot. Not because Lot was so great, uh, but verse 29 tells us because God remembered Abraham. Uh, That's the very same thing we were told about Noah right before the flood abated. God remembered Noah. Well, here God remembers Abraham, and he shows mercy to Lot, Abraham's nephew, as a result. God saving Lot was a part of his faithfulness to his covenant partner, Abraham. Lot would be spared on account of Abraham. So God comes to Lot, or rather he sends two angels to Lot, and after Lot drags his feet for a while, the angels Uh, finally, literally take him by the hand and drag him and his wife and two of his daughters out of the city. Which brings us then to verse 17. Verse 17, we read, and as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. The angels come uh, to warn Lot, who announced uh, the judgment ahead of time. They announced the judgment ahead of time to him. Uh, These angels uh, waited around as Lot dilly-dallied. These angels then drag him out of the city, and then they tell Lot to escape to the hills. Now, you would think that they would know what they were talking about. Don't look back. Don't stop. Just go, lest you be swept away. But oddly enough, Lot doesn't believe them. They say, essentially, if you run, you'll escape. 
But Lot says in verses 18 through 20, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Lot says, I won't make it. Uh, If I try to go to the hills, I'll be overtaken. Here they are trying to flee the city before it burns, but Lot decides to take take issue with their instruction. It's too far, Lot says. So he asks for God to spare a small city. And there's a contrast here between Abraham's prayer in chapter 18 and Lot's prayer here in chapter 19. Abraham prayed, you remember, for Sodom uh, based on righteousness. Lot prays for himself that his life will be saved based on the fact that the city is small. It's not that this city is righteous or more righteous than Sodom or some such thing, but it's small. Lot's concern is not justice or even mercy for the city, just saving his own skin. Some commentators have suggested that Lot wasn't really worried about being overtaken uh, as he ran at all, but he just couldn't take the idea of life outside of a city. He would flee Sodom, okay, fine, but flee to the hills? He had gotten comfortable with city life. So he asks for God to spare a city and couches it in terms of, I won't make it to the hills. Either way, it stems, Lot's behavior stems and his request stems from unbelief. If God says, run or you'll be overtaken, he means run or you'll be overtaken. And yet look at the mercy of God to Lot. The angel says in verse 21, okay, fine, you you can have your city, just go. And what we find in Lot is this is half-hearted obedience, and it won't end well. Uh, Lot is is covenantally righteous, as we talked about last week. He's spared from judgment for Abraham's sake, but Lot is compromised, and he can't seem to simply obey. The angels literally have to drag him out of the city. As we read through the scriptures, we find this is not unusual for God's people. Israel, too, could be hard of hearing and slow to obey. Repeatedly throughout their life, their their unwillingness to listen to God's voice led to discipline after discipline. It's true, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, but of course, I'd, I'd still rather not face his discipline. And the writer of Hebrews tells us if God punished Israel when they refused to listen to God's voice from Sinai... Hebrews 2.3, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? See, Sodom is, is the prototypical judgment, but Jesus is the, the archetypical deliverance. God has made known his salvation through his son, not simply deliverance from Sodom, but deliverance from sin, its guilt and its power. Uh, not deliverance from temporal judgment, but deliverance from eternal judgment. How shall we escape? Well, the answer is we listen to God's voice. Not drag our feet like Lot, but listen to what God has to say. If you find yourself stuck in sin, struggling with sin's mastery, facing sin's punishment, here's step one. Uh, Listen to God's voice. And don't be slow to listen like Lot. Don't argue with angels, right? Pick up God's word and listen. Sit yourself under the preached word and listen. And by listen, of course, I I don't simply mean hear with your ears, uh, listen in Scripture is a metaphor for obedience, James 1.22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. 
The gospel says Christ has done everything necessary for your salvation. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He died for sin. He rose for our justification. He ever lives to intercede for us. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. Turn from sin and turn to God. Listen to this message. Flee from sin and flee to Jesus, the Savior of sinners. So the first point is simply listen to God's voice. Listen to the message of Scripture. Second, don't look back. It's hard to leave what is familiar. It's hard to leave what you love. Lot's wife just couldn't leave. Uh, The angels had warned them not to look back, but in verse 26, Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now that is, she, she participated in the judgment that came on Sodom. Sowing a land with salt in uh, the ancient times was to make it unfarmable. It was a picture of fruitlessness and utter destruction. And Jesus uses this story like this. He says about the day of his return, Luke 17, on that day, Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus is saying, don't don't cling to this life. Remember Lot's wife. She she clung to her old life. She she had to look back. She couldn't resist. She, She longed for what she was leaving. And look what happened to her, judgment. Whoever seeks to preserve his life, Jesus says, will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Have you ever noticed there's a certain imbalance in that verse? Uh, The one who seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life, the one who actually loses his life will keep it. Elsewhere, Jesus says, the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, if we cling to our present life, if we place our value, our heart, our hopes and dreams on this present age, it will all ultimately come to nothing. The present age is passing away. But if we give up our present lives for Jesus, if we say everything I have and everything I am is yours, I give up claim to anything, you do with it as you see fit, that's when we find life, real life, life as it was meant to be. But to find that, we have to not look back. Uh, You know, there are some people who live their whole Christian life wondering what it would be like if they had never become a Christian, wondering what a life of sin would be like, wondering if they're missing out. Their heart is still in Sodom. They are living the Christian life, but they're miserable because they want to be living a life of sin. Remember Lot's wife. If anyone would save his life, he will lose it. But whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake, he will find it and keep it forever. So point one, listen to God's voice. Point two, don't look back. Point three, respond from the heart. Lot and his daughters get to Zoar, a small city that God spared. But Lot is still afraid. He's afraid to live in this city. Uh, Perhaps he sees the wickedness of Zoar and he's afraid that God will judge it as he did Sodom. Or perhaps he sees their wickedness and he's afraid of the people themselves. But either way, rather than trusting God to protect him, again, he acts out of fear and he flees to the hills. It's, of course, a little bit funny because that's where the angels told him to go in the first place, but that's what he does. He flees to the hills. He goes to the hills and he lives in a cave with his two daughters. And his oldest daughter says to her younger sister in verse 31, our father is old 
And there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. Now notice that, that Abraham was chosen to teach his children to walk in the way of the Lord, Genesis 18, 19. But, but Lot's daughter is concerned not about the way of the Lord, but about the manner of all the earth. She has learned the ways of Sodom and wants to walk in them. That's her concern. This is one of the most tragic stories in Scripture, right? These two girls are saved from the men of Sodom only to choose to defile themselves with their father. Lot had offered his daughters wickedly to be violated by the men of Sodom, and now in an ironic twist, he is violated by his daughters. Look at how far Lot has fallen. From wealthy rancher to cave dweller, his flocks and herds were once so great he had to part ways with Abraham, and now all his earthly goods fit in this cave. He chose to settle in Sodom, and now Sodom has settled in the hearts of his daughters. Lot once chose the best of the land by sight. Now his agency is annulled. His, his daughters take advantage of him, and he doesn't even realize it. He doesn't know it. Choosing sin will always undercut our ability to choose, as with Lot, so with us. And, and specifically, alcohol, while not bad in itself, Scripture elsewhere celebrates it as a good gift from God, but the abuse of alcohol leads to an inability to make good choices, as we see here. And what we need to see here is fleeing from the wrath to come is not about a change of address, it's not about a change of zip code, it's not about a change of geography, it's not about a change of outward circumstances. Lot and his daughters had all of those things. Fleeing from the wrath to come is about a change of heart. Lot's daughters never left Sodom, not really. And the Moabites and the Ammonites, uh, their children, Lot's descendants by incest, become instigators of Israel towards sexual immorality and idolatry for generations to come. If you become a Christian, there may be lots of things you change in your life. Uh, there are sure to be behaviors that, you're, that you stop. There are places that you once frequent in that you begin to avoid. There are people that you no longer spend time with. And some of that is really important. But where is your heart? Where are your desires? Repentance is a matter of the heart. Take an honest look at your heart. Be honest about what you find there. See it, own it, confess it and ask God to change that. Lot's story ends in one of the most depressing ways possible. Lot, drunk and taken advantage of by his own daughters. He has lost everything, including his dignity. Lot's misery and loss should drive him to repentance. There's no indication that it does. But the question is, will they for us? Uh, sin brings misery. Uh, if you're flirting with sin, it will bite you. <laughs> Don't flirt with it. Don't give it one inch. Put an end to it now. Repent. Listen to God's voice. Don't look back. Respond from the heart and run to Jesus. Seek refuge in the Savior. Uh, the New Testament talks about the, the day of judgment for Christians uh, in multiple places. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, if anyone builds on the foundation with, good, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire 
and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Lot was saved from Sodom, but his story didn't end well. We don't want to choose the end of Lot. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are saved and will be saved on the last day. But that doesn't mean what you do now is irrelevant. Our work will be judged on the last day, and while we will not be punished for our sin, we will be rewarded for our obedience. Rather than ending up like Lot, a sorry picture of compromise and loss, let us look to Jesus, repent of sin, and seek to grow in holiness of heart and life. Flee the coming judgment. Repent. Listen to God's voice. Don't look back. Respond from the heart and run to Jesus. Finally, warn those in danger and pray for them. Let's say uh, that, that this is all true of you. you. You've repented of sin. Perhaps you repent daily. You're willing to take a good, hard, honest look at your heart. You're ready to see your sin and own it and turn from it to Jesus. Now what? Like Jesus, look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Warn those in danger and pray for them. Even Lot gave warning to some around him. Uh, Lot warns his sons-in-law. They don't listen, but he does warn them. For that matter, the angels warn Lot and literally drag him out of Sodom. Uh, We shouldn't shy away from the message of judgment and the hope of the gospel. People need to know that a judgment day is coming. A message of judgment is what drives us to grace. We don't need Jesus if there's no judgment, right? But judgment is real, and we need Jesus to save us from ourselves and our sin and the wrath to come. Uh, There are dozens of parallels between this story and the story of the flood. One of the things we find in the big picture is that after the judgment of water, there comes a a judgment of fire. And there is coming a judgment of fire. uh, Peter tells us that the, the old world was destroyed by water in the flood. And then in 2 Peter 3, 7, he adds this, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Judgment is coming. If you are, are, if you are ready, who do you know who needs to hear? As Sodom is burning, verse 27 tells us that Abraham goes back out to the place where he had stood before the Lord. That is the place where he interceded for Sodom, prayed for Sodom, prayed for justice and mercy. And Abraham looks down towards Sodom and he sees the smoke uh, like the smoke of a furnace. Can you imagine what was going through Abraham's head in that moment? Uh, Abraham had pleaded with God to preserve this city if there were just 10 righteous people there. And God said, okay. But Abraham goes out and he sees the smoke. Did his prayer make a difference? Did it do any good? And you can understand, I'm sure, how Abraham might have felt in that moment. Uh, Have you prayed for someone, a loved one, a neighbor, a co-worker, pleaded that God would save them? And so far, maybe things have only gotten worse. Abraham didn't know in that moment whether Lot had been saved, whether his nephew was turned to ash. Abraham didn't know. But verse 29 tells us, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Why was Lot saved? Again, because of Abraham, because of his intercession, because of his prayer, because of his pleading, because of Lot's relation to Abraham, the man of faith. 
As Lot was saved from temporal judgment because of Abraham, so we are saved from eternal judgment because of Jesus. Jesus took the judgment that we deserved. He didn't face fire and brimstone, but the anguish of the cross. He faced the Father's rejection, the wrath of God. I think one of the reasons Jesus talks so often about the final judgment is because he of all people knows what that judgment will be like. He has tasted it for all who look to him. And because of the resurrection, he lives forever to pray for us, to plead on our behalf based on his blood and righteousness, and by faith we belong to him. And now we too can draw near. We can pray for those who need it. We can intercede for the lost. We draw near through Jesus, our great high priest. We pray based on his merit and righteousness. We seek God's mercy and grace for the lost around us. And I wonder if you would be willing, as you think about this chapter, as you think about the coming judgment, as you think about the reality of judgment, I wonder if you would be willing even to pick you know, uh, two or three non-Christians in your life and simply commit to be praying for them. It's a random number, right? It could be one, it could be two, it could be four, whatever, but, but pick some and pray for them. If you forget one day, right, no worries, just pick up the next day and keep going. Intercede with the Father on their behalf. Pray that God would work. Pray based on the merits of Jesus. Pray that they too would listen to God's voice, would respond from the heart, would turn from the wrath to come, and would not look back. Now, as I was thinking about these things and the, the, the necessity to pray for the lost, someone uh, reading uh, the scroll book that we have in the back, Chosen by God, asked me a great question this week. If God is in control of who is and who is not saved, what are we praying for when we pray for the lost? What sense does it make uh, to, to pray for them if God has already decided who to save and who not to save? We can't ask God to change his mind, right? So why pray? And it's a great question. Another way of asking the question is, how does, how does election relate to praying for the lost? Or for that matter, how does election relate to evangelizing the lost? Now, the long answer to that question can be found in J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And I'll leave you to read that. The short answer to that question is this. It actually doesn't make sense to pray for God to save someone unless he is sovereign. If God is not in control of who is and who is not saved, then our prayers for the lost fall on impotent ears. That said, uh, much like our sharing the gospel with people, our praying is a means to an end. When God ordains an end, he also ordains the means. And God uses means, even our prayers, to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And God will bring about his purposes, his chosen ends, his sovereign plan. But by his grace, he uses us to accomplish those purposes, even our prayers. And so pray with confidence, knowing you draw near to a God who is sovereign and is therefore able to answer your prayers according to his purposes and in his timing. And so pray for the lost. Pray that God would give them ears to hear. Pray that God would soften their heart by his spirit. Pray that God would give you opportunities to speak of his saving work in Jesus. Pray that God will bring other Christians into this person's life to do the same. Pray that God would save this person and glorify his grace in their life. Let's share and pray and wait for God to act for his glory and in his timing. Let's pray.
Our Father, we, we, each of us in this room most likely know someone who does not know your saving grace in Jesus. And we, we pray for those people, Father. We pray that by your grace and by your power and through your spirit that you would draw them to yourself. Jesus uh, said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So, Father, we pray that you would be drawing people to Christ by your spirit. And we pray that you would uh, hear our prayers and answer them, uh, not because of us, not because we're so great, but for the glory and the righteousness of Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.